Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order, in order that we, who were the first hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, thanks to Mary and Lottie. Um, ben Clark, our pastor of outreach, is going to come and explain that passage to us, so please keep that open. I'm going to pray for him, and then Ben's going to come up. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the wonders uh, that we've just read. Uh, there is much that we should praise you for, uh, for what we've just been told. Please uh, help us. Uh, and we ask that you would help Ben uh, to help us to understand the riches uh, of the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, as most of you will know, we've, for the past few weeks, we've been going through a journey uh, looking at the five solas of the Reformation. That is the five key principles that, that the reformers of the Christian faith, about 500 years ago, um, went back to, brought, brought the church back to focus on. And the ones we've been through so far, we started with Scripture alone, the fact that we only know what we know about God because he's revealed it in Scripture and we can trust it and everything we must believe in comes from that. Um, the second one is Christ alone. We looked at how Jesus is the only place that we can go to for salvation, for security and help. Christ alone. And then grace alone. It's not by anything that we can do. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be rescued. But God in his great grace just pours that upon us and gives us what we don't deserve. And then we looked at faith alone. How, 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 does, how does that um, great transaction happen. It happens when we trust him in faith. It's not by anything we do. It's not by the amount of works that we achieve. It's all by faith. Um, and today we're looking at the fifth solar, and that is to God's glory alone. God's glory alone. But why this solar? Why did they choose? Why was this an issue that the early reformers felt they needed to deal with? Well, well the issue was back in the day, 500 years ago and before, before that, there was a problem in the church. And the problem was this, that the church was seeking glory, not so much for God, 
but for the church itself. That means glory was found in buildings, in the Pope's power, and in fancy services and stuff like that. So, so that meant that, that's, I mean, that's a reason why indulgences were sold 500 years ago, so they could make all the money that they needed to build these vast, glorious palaces called churches. So the people would look at those buildings and know just how glorious the Pope is. And the reformers wanted to challenge that. The church was more concerned of the glory of Rome, the Roman church. They were concerned with the glory of God. You see, no matter how impressive St. Paul's Basilica is, and it really is an impressive building, no matter how impressive it is, it is insignificant in comparison to the great glory of God. It's insignificant. It bears no resemblance to the glory of God that we will see as we look through Ephesians chapter 1. But the shocking truth is, the reason why this is still relevant for us today is because we constantly fall into that same sin. Making it not about God's glory, but about ours. And it so subtly moves that way. And we think about us rather than him. So God's glory, this solar, is vital, was vital 500 years ago to reform the church. And it's vital today to reform our hearts. You know, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to see some amazing wonders of God's glory. So uh, let's have a look at that verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You see, often I think the way people outside of the church and even inside the church we can see God is like he's a grumpy giant. You know, you know kind of like Jack, the, the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk? He's up there in his cloud. And he's got his big pot of gold. And we, we know if we want his gold, we're not going to get it by climbing up a beanstalk and fighting him. There's, we're not going to get any gold that way. So people think that when we gather like this, we, we kind of tickle his ego a little bit. And we praise him. We say, God, you're so great. You're so great. You're fabulous. And we're hoping that this grumpy, greedy giant might throw down a few golden coins of blessing. And I think that's how a lot of people think. Um, what, what they think church is all about. It's so easy that we could fall into that so that idea, but actually it's not that, is it? Look at it again. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. No, God has blessed us. With what? With a few little things here? That No, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You see, the glory of God, I mean, in one sense, it, it can be seen in his greatness, in all the riches that he has in heaven. It can be seen in that, but it's more gloriously seen, not in how rich he is, but in how generous he is. And as we go through Ephesians 1, we're going to see the, or I'm praying that I can help you to see, the riches of his generosity towards us in Christ Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, you need to see his generosity so what are those blessings that God has revealed to us, his glory through? Well, I've got four points that I'm going to go through. Some of them will be short, some of them will be longer. And, and they are this. In Ephesians 1, we will see God's glory through these things. Eternal adoption. Lavish redemption. Intimate assurance. And finally, we will see that our glory, I mean our joy, is found in his glory. Eternal adoption then. 
So the, so the passage goes on, and, and we, we find there the words adoption. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption. Adoption is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It really is a beautiful thing. And many of you know this past year that I've adopted a little girl called Josephine, and it's been a real joy in our family to be able to do that. And yesterday, it was, it was her birthday, and we, we celebrated it in this room, and, and we, we, not this entire room, but we, you know, we kind of pulled the curtains back, and we had a little party in the back, and we had this the joy of inviting all these families that we'd got to know through the process of adoption. And they weren't families when we met them. They were couples longing to adopt, and now they're families. And it was so great to see how all of them had been placed with, had children placed with them, and now have, they've created forever homes for these children. It's beautiful that this room yesterday was a glimpse of the wonder and beauty of adoption. It was absolutely fantastic. Children who had no parents, who were lost in the world, without a forever and secure home, were chosen and taken to belong into new families. Isn't that a beautiful thing? But what this passage is telling us is that adoption is just a picture of what God has done for each and every one of us. We need to be adopted into his family. Let's look at that. Let's read those verses again. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Paul wants the believers, as they read this, to remember, realize that they were chosen by God in eternity. Before the creation of the world, chosen to be adopted as sons and daughters of God in heaven. He's saying that we're all spiritual orphans, lost and aimless in the world without the knowledge of eternal love, wandering in the world without a home. Yet before we ever knew it, before we were even born, he set his love upon us in eternity past that we would be adopted into his family. And if you were in Christ this morning, that means that long before you you were born, long before your parents even knew you would exist, long before your grandparents were ever born, God set his love upon you, that you would be adopted into his family. Now, um, the, the way that Emily and I adopted was something called fostering to adopt. And that means that even before she was born, we knew she was coming. And we set out on a mad scramble to buy all the things that needed to be bought so that she could be brought into our family. We knew the due date and we were setting everything around it. We were excited about it. But the question arises, what did she do to deserve it? What did she do To have our love set upon her, she did nothing. She didn't need to fill out a form. She didn't even need to smile at us. She didn't need to to ask nicely. She didn't need to do anything. Before she could ever do anything, our love was set upon her. And what is wonderful is, despite I've got great love for that little girl, and it's growing every single day, but the love I have for her pales into significance compared to the love that God has bestowed upon you who are in Christ Jesus. That means that yesterday was a glorious picture of adoption, but today, right now, in this room, is a glorious picture of God's eternal, giving love. He loves you. He chose you. He predestined you before you could ever do anything to earn it or deserve it. 
Before you could even ask for it, he'd set it on your life. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful thing? That means that adoption, is as wonderful as it is in human terms, was actually invented by God. And every time we hear that story of a wonderful ch- a child being brought into a new home, and you know, our hearts sing with joy, and we go, that's wonderful. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You're not just rejoicing in what's happened to that child. There's a part of you which is rejoicing and hoping that that too would be your story. Because if you're trusting in Christ today, that is your story. It's an echo of the wonderful love that God has bestowed, bestowed upon his people. In love, he predestined us for adoption. He didn't do anything. You didn't deserve it or earn it. You didn't apply for it. No. But why did God do such a thing? Why would he behave in such a way to, to us? We don't deserve that. In verse 6, well, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The answer comes to the praise of his glorious grace. Or to paraphrase it, so that his glorious grace would be seen and praised. That's why he did it. It's all about him. He did it for his glory to be seen. We were adopted so that in that act of adoption, the whole universe would see how glorious God is. God's eternal, God is the eternal adoptive father of all who are found in Christ. But how can a holy God adopt the likes of me? How can a holy God adopt the likes of us? How could he say about me that, that I can be or we can be or you can be holy and blameless in his sight? The answer is, my second point, through his lavish redemption. See that in verse 7? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. This verse reminds us that as beautiful as adoption is, there's always a sad story behind it. The reality is that adoption is only ever necessary because of sin. Now, you may or may not know this, but there are about 70,000 children in the, in the UK waiting to be adopted, waiting to be adopted into forever families. It's quite a shocking number, isn't it? And that means they have regular courses for, for people who are training to be adopted, who are thinking about doing that, to, to help them to understand the realities of adoption. And when I went on that course with Emily, um, we were given this list, and it looks nice and bright and colorful and cheery, doesn't it? But actually, what this list is, it's a list of all the behavioral problems that an adopted child may have because of the abuse and neglect they've faced. And it's a shocking list. And the idea is that for, for, adopted, for, for potential adopters is to see just what it will cost to adopt a child. They come from broken situations, broken families, and they will bring that brokenness with them. So to adopt a child means that you have to go into it with open eyes, being aware of the risks that it poses, that it will come at great cost. And that's true for adopted babies, but this verse, we're reminded that there is a great cost that God needed to pay for our adoption. And it's not because we were innocent and things happened to us, no. We needed the forgiveness of our sins. We had baggage that we brought with us too. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 puts it this way. This is the baggage that you and I carry. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and at the ruler of this kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's our baggage. That's the baggage that we bring to adoption. We were dead in our transgressions. Dead in our transgressions. In sin, we're dead. We bring all that back. All that's around us is death and destruction and broken relationships and pain. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In him, we have redemption through his blood. You don't have to look very far to know that's true about the human race, do you? Just turn on the news. The mosque attack. Um, the news this morning I was reading about an, old, an elderly man, 96 years old, who was attacked with a hammer. But the truth is we don't even need to look at the, at the world, at the news, to see that this is true. We just need to look into our own hearts and to look around us. And not just to see the people that have hurt us. It's always easy to see other people and blame them. But see the people that we've hurt. The people that we've pushed away. The people that we refuse to forgive. The pains that we just won't let go of. The grudges that we hold. We all have this baggage. And, and more than that, not only do we, we do that with everybody else, but the Bible tells us right back from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we rejected the eternal loving Father of all. Mankind is a human race. It said no to God's loving rule. Instead of seeking his glory, we sought our own. And we went off in our own direction. And that's not just the story of Adam and Eve. That's all our stories. We've rejected God. We have, we have pushed his loving parenthood away from ourselves. We became orphans because we've rejected God. And yet, even as Christians, even when we trust in God, he knows that we'll still let him down, we'll still fail him, we'll still get angry at him without, without reason, without real cause. We're like grumpy teenagers, we'll blame him, say he doesn't love us at times. We'll do that. He knows that in advance. Yet before the creation of the world... He chose to love us in his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life, have everlasting adoption. And all of that sin, all of that stuff that we've done, Jesus paid for lavishly on the cross. Not begrudgingly. He didn't just go, ah, oh, crumbs out of can't believe I've got to do this. I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway, despite them. No, he lavishly pours his love on us in the cross. Lavishly. Now, I, I don't use that word much in my language, lavishly. When do I use lavishly? I use lavishly when I'm thinking about maple syrup on pancakes. That's, that's the time that I lavish maple syrup on my pancakes because I love it. Because I want to taste more of it. I want to enjoy more of the maple syrup and more of the pancakes. That is the kind of language that God is using, Paul is using here about God. He lavishes his love on sinners. He lavishes his love on people who don't deserve it. Why? Because it's the pleasure of his will. Because that's what he wants to do more than anything else. Because he finds great joy in it. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful thing? But how far does this go? How far does his lavishing of his love go? How wide is the love of God and the purposes of God? Well, we're told it goes further than we could ever imagine. 
But at the end of verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and under earth, I mean, on earth, under Christ. It's for God, for, it's God's good pleasure to bring everything that's now broken and divided in the world and in the entire universe because of sin back into order under Christ. Now, don't misunderstand that. I don't want you to think for a second that that means that everybody is in Christ. That's not what it means. We're told over and over again in this passage that only those who are in Christ receive those promises. But it does mean that God is one day going to perfect the universe. Every star that has been dimmed by sin will one, 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 one day again be glorious as it should be. God's redemption, lavish redemption, is going to start in this room or where anywhere where believers are gathered, and it's going to spread to the whole universe. It's, it's, it's lavish. It's, it's just going to go on and on and on. God's glory is displayed through his eternal adoption, his lavish redemption. But how can we be sure, how can we be sure this wonderful lavish adoption is ours? Well, the answer is through God's glorious, intimate assurance intimate assurance. Verse 11 and 12 are a bit of a summary of where we've come so far, so I'm just going to jump to verse 13. Let's have a look at that. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and you were marked in him with a seal, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Firstly, let me ask you a question. Do you want this? You know, I've been talking about this adoption, this wonderful, glorious adoption of the, the heavenly Father. Do you want that? Is that something that, you, that you've experienced or maybe you haven't experienced it and you're thinking, you know, that sounds beautiful. I wish that could be mine, but how could that be mine? How do I make it mine? Well, the answer is when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believe you are marked to the Holy Spirit. That's how it can become your story if you just believe it. Do you want this? Do you want to be loved by God in that way? Well, Ephesians 1 is inviting you to believe it and make it yours. It can be yours too. It's not asking you to earn it. Just trust him. Believe the message of this story and it can become yours. Simple. Well, because it sounds too good to be true. How can we be sure? But then the answer comes. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, a promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption of those who are God's chosen possession to the praise of his glory. When you believe it, you are marked with God's seal. Like a king presses his seal into, into a scroll to, to sign it as his. God presses his seal into you. The Holy Spirit comes into you and you are sealed for eternity with a seal that cannot be broken. And then you, he, the Holy Spirit is, is a deposit guaranteeing the future of that inheritance. It's like a down payment, like a tiny foretaste of this future glory to be known and to come. You experience in a very real way a deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life. But look closely at, at, at what the Holy Spirit is in here. It's not just that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal mark or, or a thing that's given to you, like something you could put in your bank account. No, the Holy Spirit in verse 14 is who is the deposit. The Holy Spirit is not just an impersonal force or a power. It is a he. 
It's the very presence, the intimate presence of God himself dwelling in the heart of the believer. That's what it is. It's a he. And here we see, we see the whole of God's nature, the, all, the, the, all of the Trinitarian God, God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in our salvation. We see God the Father choosing us before the foundation of the world. God the Son lavishly paying for our sins on the cross. And we see the Holy Spirit making it real in our hearts so that we can experience it and know the love of God day by day, moment by moment. It's, this is literally God's intimate presence coming and dwelling in us so that as we go through the struggles and pains and strifes of life, we can hear him lovingly whispering in our ears or in our hearts, I am with you. I love you. I chose you before you could ever, ever have hoped and I will never, ever, ever let you go no matter what you're going through. You are my prized possession. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's this intimate assurance that the Holy Spirit offers to all who believe. Paul is saying that God's intimate presence is with us, that he dwells within us. And we could be tempted to ask at this point, after we've heard all these things that God has poured upon us, we could be tempted to to ask the question, well, who are we that God would do such a thing? And, And that is a good question. That's a great question, but it's not the best question. The best question, according to Ephesians 1, is not is who are we, but it's who is he, that he would do such a thing for us, for you and for me. Who is he, that he would love a rebellious, broken people like you and me? And the answer is he is the glorious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our final point, our joy in his glory. You probably noticed um, Paul's repeated response to all this revelation of God's glory. It came out four times in in four different verses. There in verse three, let me read it to you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And again in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely which has freely been given us in the one he loves in verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's people to the praise of his glory. We're told four times that all this was done so that God would be praised so that God would be glorified, that the right response to all this stuff is to praise him. But you know what, there's a, maybe there's a little part of us that feels a little uncomfortable with this idea of seeking God's glory, that God is somehow up in heaven saying, I desire people to praise me. Because it goes a little against the grain, doesn't it? In our culture, maybe in our mind. Uh, Brad Pitt, who was brought up um, uh, in an evangelical Baptist church, stopped believing in God and being a Christian because of this truth because I think he misunderstood it and this is what he said about it he said "Um, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says you have to acknowledge me you have to say that I'm the best and then I'll give you eternal happiness if you want if if you won't then you don't get it it seemed to me it seemed to be about ego I can't see God operating from ego so it made no sense to me so he walked away from the Christian faith because he thought it was all about an ego trip he's saying God's, doesn't God demand praise make him sound egocentric? 
Isn't God on a bit of a power trip? Isn't he a bit proud and self-seeking? But you know what? That couldn't be further from the truth. It really can't. And it's different for a couple of reasons. First, let me, let me show you two things. Firstly, um, did you see how God's glory is bound up in our salvation? I mean, this is the pinnacle of God's glory being revealed to the world. I mean, God's glory is revealed in, in the whole of creation. It absolutely is. But we're told in Ephesians goes on to tell us that actually it's, it, God's glory is primarily displayed in the love that he lavishes upon his church, in what he's doing in this place. The, the redemption of God's people is more glorious than all of the stars put together. I mean, that, that, that is where his, his, his glory is really put on display, and the whole of the universe is really just a sandpit to show off God's glory shown by loving, broken sinners. But the, the, the point is, his glory is bound in how generous he is to us, in the giving of himself. As we were discussing this as the ministry team earlier on this week, we were, we were talking about this, and Josh Greenhill, believe it or not, said something really, really profound. He said this, when we seek glory for ourselves, it's all about taking. It's all about taking praise. It's all about taking. But when God is seeking glory, it's all about his giving. Isn't that what we see in Ephesians 1? His glory is bound up in his giving of himself over and over and over again, lavishly to the people that he chose, not because they deserve it, but because he is glorious and gracious. That's the first reason Brad Pitt's wrong. And the second reason is that we find that our joy is bound up in his glory. You know, let's go back and look at those commands again. It looks like commands. It just says the four times, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. But they're not commands. Did you notice that? Paul isn't saying praise Jesus or else. What he's doing, he's describing what God is like in his true nature, in his glorious reality, and he can't help but praise him because of it. That's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1. It's the only way you can respond to this kind of generous God, in praise to him. Because as you discover that this is true, your story is bound up in his generous, glorious giving. You experience this in your heart, and you just can't help but bubble up and praise him. You can't help but do that when you realize this is your story. That's what he deserves. Nobody else can do this. Nobody else has done this. Nobody else wants to do this for you or me. God has done it. He deserves our praise. And when you capture it, you cannot stop praising him. When you really get it, you can't stop praising him. And it's that which sees the glory of God. God's glory shown in us is not found in our begrudging praise of him. It's not found in God twisting our arms and making us praise him. That does not make God look glorious. God looks glorious when we enjoy to praise him. When despite the trappings of this world and the pain that we're going through, we say, you know what? I am eternally loved by him who has lavishly poured his forgiveness and grace upon me. And we rejoice. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, put it this way. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified 
than if they only see it. You know, it's possible that you've been coming to church for years and you've only seen the glory of God. You've only seen the, um, the realities of the gospel. And if I was to ask you what they are, you'd be able to tell me the ABC of salvation. You'd be able to tell me about the five solas and how they work. You'd be able to describe them to me wonderfully, probably in a better way than even I could communicate. But it's possible that you could know all that, that you could see all that, but never have tasted his goodness. It's possible that you could know that in your mind, but it's never caused your heart to be on fire with joy because it's not your story. You might as well be talking about the beauty and the beast or Jack and the Beanstalk. And if that's you today, I, 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 I long for you to, to, to realize that about yourself and that you would trust in Christ today. Make this story yours by believing it. And if you're not rejoicing in the glory of God today, if you're not rejoicing in the glory of God now, pray. Pray that you would. Pray that you would experience this love in a very real, tangible way. There is nothing more important than this. Miss work tomorrow and pray. Call in sick. You know, my pastor told me that I can't come to work because I just don't get the glory of God. I give you permission to do that if you're going to pray about it. Because nothing else matters. Don't go to sleep tonight if you're not rejoicing in the gospel. Because that's where God's glory is bound up. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 16 verse 11, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we are standing before the glory of God, when we are standing before his bright, shining brilliance, you will be filled with joy. There'll be nothing more urgent than than spending time in his presence, just basking in his glorious, loving generosity towards his children. Glory be to God alone. Let's pray. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.